For the rest of you, I would like you to turn, please, to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, which is apparently the, uh, one of the favorite stories of, of Rick's. So we're going to... I let him know while we were doing our greeting time that uh, I didn't study at all for this sermon. So, you know, we're just going to wing it up here and see what happens. So, and if you believe that, I also have some land on, uh, on the real estate market. It's in Arizona, and boy, I tell you, it's really nice to watch the sailboats go by. So you're welcome to uh, check that out later. I'll give you the MSID on it. Uh, for John chapter 9, believe it or not, verses 1 through 34. Now that does not mean that you're going to enjoy this fine day with these windows open until 3 in the afternoon. It just means that in the narrative, you can't chop it up at all. Um, if you do, you're going to miss aspects of it, and so we are going to talk about the whole story about it, but uh, rest assured, um, we do have a singular focus here, and uh, it is on the nature of an unbelieving heart, and that is indeed the title this morning, The Unbelieving Heart. As John is interacting with us throughout the entire Gospel of John, he is expressing to us multiple ways in which that people can not respond rightly to the Gospel of Christ. Right? We're given all sorts of examples of this. Nicodemus, who is a learned person, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, doesn't come to salvation in Christ immediately because he has to understand how this works out. And that's all what John 3 is about and the struggle that he has with this idea that it's not good enough to just be Jewish. You actually have to be circumcised in heart and mind as well. You have to be born not only of water, but also of the Spirit. Nicodemus doesn't like that. He starts off from a skeptical stance. We see at the very end of the Gospel of uh, John, we see another skeptic as well. That's Thomas, who won't believe unless he can place his hands in his side and feel his nail scars. That kind of stuff is not from a place of good uh, intention. Because Jesus points out, not everyone who comes after you is going to have that ability. You know, when you came to Christ, when you came to Christ, did you get to examine the nail prints in his hand? Did you get to see his, his side that was run through with a spear or any of these other things? Did you actually even see Christ? No. Jesus speaks this reality. That you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe and have never seen. The Gospel of John is being written again to remind us all that we may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. We have to base it on the testimony of those that came before us. Here we have John, but we also have the reality that if we come to the story of Jesus Christ and we hear the gospel and we refuse to believe, there is no excuse good enough. Because even if we were presented with all of the proof in the universe, it would not be enough to change an unbelieving heart to a believing heart. Here we see in today's story the Pharisees and the Jews presented with a man born blind. They want this so not to be the case that they go and interview his parents. And they go and interview him and they try to challenge everything and say, this is just not the way of it. It cannot be that this sinner, Jesus, has healed you. So it's got to be something else. And we see all their barriers set up. And what John is including this whole story for is an example of how not to react to the gospel of Jesus, and I want us to see it this morning. So let's stand and we will read this passage. Uh, and since it is a long passage, 
Uh, As I read it, I will be emphasizing certain things in the story, so keep that in mind. It's not my normal way of reading, but it's a very long passage, so we'll do this. The word of the Lord, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 34. And as he passed by, he saw a man, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered and said, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the they brought him to the Pharisees, or excuse me, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, That man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others says, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He responded, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parent answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Go ahead and ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were fearful of the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that anyone, that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, of, he's, of, he's of age. Ask him. And so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since, the, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in sin. You would teach us? And then they cast him out. Let's pray. Father, we pray that what is found in us is a believing and loving heart towards your Son, our Lord Christ. We pray that we are not found amongst those who do not believe on him, do not rely on him for all things. We pray, Father, instead that what is found in us is a heart that dedicates itself to Christ no matter the cost. We pray that we base this not on the observations that we've made, nor even solely on us verifying certain things, but Father, we base it on the word and the testimony that you have placed in Holy Scripture. We pray that life come to our corpses for that end. That this new life trust in Christ and heed the word given. We pray, Father, that we emulate the same thing. We do not understand all things about Christ, but one thing we know, he has brought us to life again, and we now walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray that that is the testimony of all who hear. And if not, Father, give ears to hear and eyes to see that we may walk in this way. We pray for it with all of our hearts. In your son's name, amen. You can be seated. Now, there is a lot of things in this story, a lot of things going on, obviously a very long passage, but one of those stories that if you chop it up, you're really going to miss some of the most central aspects to it. And this is one of the things I love about the long-form uh, narratives that John is about to give us in the latter parts of the Gospel of John, is he expresses this reality because what he has been teaching, he now shows in narrative form. He gives story about you know, there, there's, there's rank skepticism, and then there's healthy skepticism. And here, John is showing us one of the barriers to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is just skepticism for skepticism's sake. One of the issues here, and one of the groups of people that I want to really focus in on, is the Pharisees' unbelieving hearts. Because John is including them as a warning to the reader. This is one of the optional ways to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways that humans respond to this. And in fact, all the learning in the world and all the quote-unquote good deeds in the world and all the joining together and all the teaching in synagogues and being religiously seen as important or high are not actually points towards your favor. <laughs> Studying the scriptures, knowing the law of God, even going to synagogue every Saturday is not going to help you with a believing heart. I'm going to go ahead and point the same thing to us. Going to church every Sunday does not give you a believing heart. Even hearing the scriptures will not give you a believing heart. If something will, it will be the scriptures. But it is not certain that simply because you know the scriptures, you trust in Christ. And this is what John is showing us. He's telling us to look at our own hearts and see whether or not what's in us is a believing heart or not. Because the Pharisees are included as a warning. I think it's pretty clear to see. Because every way in which they respond is a rank warning against a proper way of understanding the scriptures and the claims of Christ. We can see that straight up they are rooted in legalism. 
If you're taking notes, by the way, I have five little things. I don't ever do lists, but if you are taking notes, this would be a fine time to write this down. Five aspects of how the Pharisees responded to this that John is warning us about, and then we will make a beeline back through the passage. One is that the Pharisees' response is rooted in legalism. When I say legalism, I don't mean that they love the law of God and try to follow it and all these things. No, no, no. I mean the outcomes of legalism. The outcomes of legalism, which is rooted in pride. And you will see, quick to accuse anyone who's different in any way than you. Quick to judge and to cast out people that claim to be following the same God that you are, but you don't like the way that they're doing it. Quick to recognize failure in other people, but not see it in themselves. This is the, this is the effect of legalism in life. That's true in the church all the same. So their, their skepticism, their response here is rooted in their own legalistic concept. Two, their skepticism was also reinforced by a fear of losing their authority. If anyone follows Christ, we're going to cast them out of the synagogue. They are not going to come in here and mess up my authority. That's not how it's going to go. And so their response... That's number two, reinforced by their fear of losing authority. They like to be in charge of it all. Another sign of having an unbelieving heart, the unwillingness to listen to evidence. I'm set in my ways. That's the end of it. It's not a healthy thing. That's not a healthy thing for a Christian, in fact. The reality is we don't know everything about what it means to follow Christ. There's people that have followed Christ all throughout the centuries that look very, very different than us. This is why I teach church histories on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. so that we can be reminded that Christians of all walks of life look very different than us, and yet they follow the same Lord. I don't have to, if I'm evangelizing somebody from Zambia, turn them into me. They're going to dress differently than me. They're going to sing differently than me. They're going to have different preferences than I am. They're going to have different concept of what going to church means than I do. That's just fine. But if I'm so focused on myself being so right that nobody else that disagrees with me could possibly be right, I will never listen to evidence. This is exactly what the Pharisees were. That's the third one, unwillingness to listen to any evidence, even if it's a man who was born blind that can now see. At the heart of the whole matter, and this is where it gets more significant, the fourth point. The unbelieving heart is fueled by pride. Pride. There is no trust in the Lord here. There is no humility. Once you know it, pride is the chief fruit of the false teacher. Humility is the chief fruit of of the Christian. And so the unbelieving heart is easy to see inside ourselves. Do we have a prideful, unbelieving heart in us? Or do we desire humility? And the last one, the issue of their skepticism was that it was not for lack of evidence or knowledge or any such thing or the wrong witnesses or the lack of scripture or anything. It was simply a matter of the heart they will refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus no matter what they're presented with. In other words, they've already decided the outcome. 
And so they interpret the evidence in light of it. You will find this very, very common among atheists, for instance, who have determined the outcome of their decision. God can't exist, and so now we have to interpret all evidence in light of that conclusion. But Christ doesn't even come to you and say, you have to determine that God exists and therefore go interpret everything. No, it's you come and listen to God who has spoken. To a people, to a bunch of people, verified it, clarified it, was risen in sight of witnesses and gave many proofs of this over and over again. This is not rank belief in, in a leap into the dark. The scriptures never talk about faith that way. It says, this is Christ, who at the right time was born into the world, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that he could redeem those out from underneath the law and set our feet on solid rock. Not gravel that may or may not hold our weight or sand, which when the river comes through will sweep out our foundation. He says, no, the scriptures say the words of Christ, the words of God have an authority by which we are created and continue. And so there's consistency through it out. And the Pharisees, in doing all of this, are denying the very reality of what they claim to understand. They were the teachers of the law. In fact, you'll usually find modern-day false teachers in pulpits for this point. They love to be in charge. They love to have everything set. And they are not tolerant of anything different than them. It is a sure sign of a false teacher in the church, same as it was in Judaism. It has always been the case. And so it doesn't matter if you are somebody who is just hearing the gospel or if you are the one standing in the pulpit every Sunday. John is telling you, you need to analyze your heart too. The scriptures tell us often, consider the outcome of our faith. Analyze yourself. See whether or not you are in the beloved. You say, how can I do that? Well, a lot of people try to turn it into something simple. Like, well, see if I've done more good works this week than last week. Ah, my friend, that's not how that works. You may have done a lot of good works last week and few good works this week and many more good works the next week and none the week after that. Is Christ still your Savior? Christian, is Christ still your Savior? Yes. Yes. So that can't be it. What is it then? This is what John is getting at us. And, and, And for Christians that struggle with the assurance of salvation, this is one of the greatest gifts because we are actually given what an unbelieving heart actually does with the message of Jesus. And so let's see it as a warning, and then let's see it as a hope. Let's go through the passage quickly. We're not going to sit here and pick apart everything, but let's go through it quickly. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. There. Blind from birth. No solution to be had. This isn't cataracts. This isn't something. He's going to need new eyes. There's absolutely no way that this is going to work. Someone who is born blind is not somebody who, who, who got you know, macular degeneration or, or had cataract things, just was cloudy and blocked out everything. No, it's a man who's never seen a single thing ever. That's not somebody who just gets over that. That's not somebody who just gets over that. He saw a man, uh, Christ saw a man blind from birth. And listen to how wrong the disciples are at first. Who sinned? You know, they're looking to solve a whole other theological question. 
look at this blind guy on the side of the road. Well, first of all, that's a little bit insulting, but okay. And they say, who sinned that he was born this way? Was it him? In other words, did God look down the corridors of time and see that he was a sinner and then punished him preemptively with blindness? That's a horrible question, by the way, and a, and a gross misunderstanding of how God interacts with his people. Or was it his parents, perhaps? Maybe his parents sinned, and this is God judging them. Christian, do you not see this attitude in your life, too? This idea, if I don't produce enough for the Lord, maybe he'll punish me or my children. Now, I won't even lie to you that that thought goes through my head every once in a while if I see something that happened to my kid. It, we are all prone to this temptation to think that if something goes wrong, it is God judging me. It is God seeking to destroy me. And what does Jesus say? Look, that very way of thinking is inaccurate. That's not even how God interacts with this. How was this man born blind? It's not for something he did because he was born that way. He hadn't done anything good or bad yet. And he said, well, then the next obvious thing is maybe his parents. He's being judged on behalf of his parents. And Jesus says, no. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said, it was not that this man sinned. It wasn't even that his parents sinned. In fact, it's so much better than that. This man is about 40 years old. He has been blind his whole life with no answer as to why, only hearing questions of, man, either you sinned or you were born in sin or your parents sinned. What a life. And then to hear Jesus say right in front of you, oh, no, no, no. This man's purpose for being born blind, wouldn't your ears perk up at that moment if you were the blind man? Mine would. I've been wondering my entire life why other people can describe what color is and how they can catch a ball in the air. I can't even figure out spatial reasoning like that. Imagine these words falling on his ears, hearing from Jesus the purpose why he was born blind. It was that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? What works of God? He's like, I, I'm blind. I can't work with my hands. I can't fish. I can't make things. I can't be a carpenter or a builder. Almost certainly the man had to beg. And the reason why his parents were nearby is he probably had to live with them. This, this is not a place or a society where being blind is one of the options for a successful uh, career. It doesn't really work in agrarian society. Have any of you ever planted crops before? Gardens? Make it a little easier there. Sewn, like pants together, things like this, crocheted or anything? Okay, have you ever tried to do it with your eyes closed? Good luck. Almost everything that was in their society depended on the ability to see. And so, yes, the reason why this man's parents were nearby was almost certainly because he lived with them. Begging during the day and living with his parents at night because he has nothing else to do. Can you imagine, as a man who is pushing 40 myself, how much that makes you feel worthless? And to hear for the first time his creator say to him, he wasn't born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, no. It's so that the work of God might be displayed in him. So that it might be seen and displayed 
Look at verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, oh, what a perfect time to put I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And then he bends over, he spits on the ground, makes some mud, and slathers it onto his eyes because you and I both know that's how you heal a man born blind. Wait. That's how you make people blind. Don't do that, kids. What on earth is happening? In the past, Jesus has healed a man born blind just straight up. He's literally told paralysis to go away just with his words. He's exorcised demons, not exercise, exorcised demons just with a word. He compels these maladies to go away by saying something, but not this time. What is he doing? If you talk to a blind person, you'll realize that they don't see things. First of all, that's going to be the first thing you're going to learn. But second of all, they communicate in tactile form. Jesus is meeting this guy exactly where he is. But why mud? Why dirt? Can anyone theorize? I see a huge smile on you. You got the answer, or at least you got a really wrong one. That's going to be great to listen to. What have you got? Ah, a picture to creation. From whence did Christ create our first eyes? From the dirt of the ground. And then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. A very tactile creation that this man, very good, Nate, you can keep smiling. (laughs) A very tactile miracle for this man to equate himself directly with Christ as the creator of the world as he gives him new sight while saying, I am the light of the world. Can you think of something more grand for this guy to first see than the light of the world himself who had just covered his face in mud and created new eyes out of dirt? This is the creator who's standing in front of me. And it explains why he is so flabbergasted, why all the Pharisees are wrong about him. Don't you know this God? Don't you know the one who created the first eyes out of the dirt to begin with? He just did it. Literally in front of me. And here I stand, being able to see. You all know me. You know my parents. You know that I was born blind. I've been sitting here begging. You've been ignoring me for years. And yet, here I can see. The works of God being displayed in his eyes. Jesus spat on the ground and he anointed the man's eyes with mud, said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. I don't think we ever fully realize how significant the miracles of Christ are. This man has never walked by seeing before. That's actually, the the foot-eye coordination takes years for humans to learn. If you don't know that, watch a two-year-old try to run. It takes a long time to connect what you're seeing with where your feet are going. He's never done this before. For him to come back balanced 
with, with, with foot-eye coordination like this is unbelievable. This isn't just new eyes. It's new brain wiring. He is able to use them to the fullest extent. He's not creeping along the side of something. He's not using a stick to tap to make sure everything's okay. He's just straight up walking back. The neighbors, those who had seen him before as a beggar, here he was again, begging in these streets. Everyone knows him, passing by him. His parents nearby, right? Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, yeah, it's him. We don't know how. Others said, nah, no, no, no. He just looks like him. But he kept on saying, I am the man. So they said to him, how were your eyes open? He answered and said, the man. See, this is the thing I love about this guy. He's like, I'm not going to explain to you all my theology. I'm not going to you know, try to do this. I'm just going to tell you what I know. A man called Jesus came up to me. Told me I actually had a reason why I did not see. He made some mud. He annoyed my eyes. Told me to go wash. I did. Now I can see. In fact, I don't even know where he is. (laughs) All I know is that I once was blind, but now I can see. So the people that were around him go, well, this is obviously concerning to a great degree because if that's so then we've got something about Jesus that is reaching the level of creation which means we've got God level stuff going on here none of the prophets open the eyes of the blind none of them they even raise guy from the dead no blindness healing this is a very unique aspect of creation they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. It's just like, okay, you get on in here. Now it was the Sabbath day. This is one of the things I love about John. He's just going to go ahead and lay out why it's going to really make the Pharisees annoyed. It's the Sabbath day. You had the audacity to do some work we didn't approve of on the Sabbath day. We're right about the Sabbath. You're wrong about the Sabbath, therefore you're wrong about everything. This is going to be the reasoning. We know you're a sinner. Why? You did work on the Sabbath. I love the way Jesus wrestles with this stuff. You know, they'll come up to him and go, uh, you, you, you did this bad thing on the Sabbath, this man. They even, at one point when he was in the synagogue, brought a man in with a withered hand. Couldn't use it or anything like that. Just to test Jesus to see if he would heal him in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Jesus like, looked at them, saw their thoughts, and he was like, yeah, sure, great. Stretch your hand out. And it was made whole just like the other. And they're like, ah, oh, see, he broke the Sabbath. And Jesus just looks at him and says, if you have a donkey fall into a hole on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull him out to preserve his life? You judge amongst yourself whether it's good to do good on the Sabbath or if it's good to do wrong. (laughs) And he just leaves. Same thing here. The expression is they're going to be very upset because he healed him on the Sabbath and then they're going to have to work through this reasoning that it doesn't work that way. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud to open his eyes, verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. I love how the story's getting smaller and smaller every time. He put mud on my eyes, I washed, I see. The first time he was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus came along, he told me all this, and then he go to the pool of Siloam, I went to the pool of Siloam, I washed. Now he's just like, okay, it's just, I'm tired of retelling this story. Of course it happened, I'm sitting here seeing 
said, I put mud on my eyes, wash, and I see, verse 16, some of the Pharisees says, ah, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. There. And there we have one of our points, one of the issues here. In their commitment to themselves rather than to the Lord, they are quick to accuse anyone, to judge or cast out anyone, and fail to recognize the power or the grace of God in anyone else's life because they don't remind them of them. Christian, dear Christian, learn from Christians different than you. Learn from Christians different than you. And I will say it as long as I live. Lest you think being a Christian is about being like you. Learn from Christians different than you. Because if you, sorry, the windows are open today. If, if, if you only learn from Christians that remind you of you, you will be sorely mistaken about what Christianity actually is. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any one way that this is done. It's one of the things I love about the scriptures. In the New Testament, we are not given how fast a tempo should be in church. We are not given instructions for how the order of service should be around. We're told very broad things. Read scripture, pray, focus on the apostles' teachings, and praise God. That sounds great. We're not given how that should be exact and how it's all broken down, this and that. No, it's because Christians can do all manner of things based on their settings and still be Christians. But here, the unbelieving heart doesn't want that. We don't want to honor people different than us. Instead, the unbelieving heart will look at someone different than them and say, wrong, get out. And this is what John is warning us about. How insidious the nature of this level of legalism is. Because what will happen is, if someone does not adhere to our rules, we will destroy them. And John's saying, look at your own heart. We are all of us susceptible to this. We are all of us susceptible to this. And the Pharisees are doing this exact thing. They're looking at this and going, you know, there's absolutely no way that this man who opened the eyes of a blind man could be right because he violated one of our rules. So I'm not even going to pay attention to what he says, not going to pay attention to his works. Now look, John has done all along, the, the things that bring the unbelieving heart to life is looking at the words and works of Jesus. If you're going to dismiss both the words and then also the works of Jesus while the blind man's standing in front of you, I got nothing to say. There is nothing that can be done to convince such a person. They were scared of losing their authority because if they lend credence to Jesus, then something's going to be really, really bad about their future, which is he's breaking their rules. How dare he? How dare the one who can open blind eyes with dirt from the ground, just like the creator of the world, be different than me? You see what they're focused on? Me. It's the oldest religion in history, the self. It's where Adam and Eve first went. I want my eyes to be opened and be like God. You see that? The 
the Pharisees' conclusion about him in verse 16 is, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Well, that's just a grand question because the answer is he couldn't. If he was a sinner, there's no way he could do this sign. You're exactly right. And the others said, how can, uh, excuse me, uh, we know he's not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. We have our rules, we have our structure, we have the way he doesn't remind us of us so he couldn't be following God. And the others say, a sinner couldn't possibly do these signs and there was division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he just answered back, he's a prophet. I what else could I conclude about this man? Obviously, God's prophetic ministry has returned back to the world. A prophetic ministry that all Jews knew had been silent for 500 years. Obviously, he must be a prophet. And all of a sudden, God is doing new works. And you're going to have to listen to him. That's what it means when somebody's a prophet. He speaks the word of God. And so what, what this man is saying is, not only are the works of Jesus self-evident, but so are the words. He's a prophet. In other words... Pharisees, you have to listen to him. You have to listen to him. The Jews, the Jews did not believe, and that speaks of the Pharisees there, did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight. See, that to them makes more sense than them being wrong on the Sabbath. You see that? He must have been lying for 40 years about his blindness. That's what it is. It's got to be. A, a refusal to accept any evidence to the contrary. Jesus doesn't remind me of me, therefore he's wrong. And so this work, this miracle that he, that he did, must not have been a miracle at all. This guy's probably been faking it his whole life. 40 years of faking it. They've been plotting this since before they were born. It's the only logical explanation because one thing, we know we're not wrong, so therefore all of this evidence to the contrary is, is just a lie. It's a conspiracy. They've all been plotting it for 40 years just to make fools of us. They won't make fools of us. We know we're right. You see that attitude? So instead of listening to the fully grown 40-year-old man, they go and find his parents. found his parents, the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, okay, so we don't want to be out of the synagogue. We know that you guys are on a tirade trying to destroy everyone. So we'll just say this. We know he's our son and that he was born blind. We're not going to tell you anything else. How he is able to see now, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Just go ask him. He's of age. <laughs> we kind of like being with our friends every Saturday morning. Um, we're, and we're told this. This isn't conjecture. Um, he's of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. And John includes this parenthesis. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Pharisees, for they had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Because that's how you deal with people that are wrong. You throw them away, right? Right? 
That sounds like God, right? That sounds like the ministry of Jesus, right? When people were wrong about him, he just threw them out, right? Threw them away? No. He would sit down and eat with them and call them to repentance and teach them and show them the way of life. And then they would turn on him and kill him. And here, what he's expressing is the same thing. And what John is telling us about is the same exact picture of the unbelieving heart. Verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, okay, you can't claim that he healed you anymore. You have to give glory to God. We know that that's right. We'll take that from theology. We know that he's a sinner. And the guy answered back and he says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. And, and this is where he just shrinks his entire testimony down to a single series of words. He says, one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. There, let's just make it simple. I'll take out the washing, I'll take out the mud, I'll take out everything else. You cannot deny that I once was not seeing and now I am. Not good enough. Because what he's trying to do is trying to convince the Pharisees that this is a work of God. It really isn't about the mud, though that's awesome and a callback to creation, but it kind of distracts. And he's like, you guys seem very confused about this. You guys seem very confused about this reality that God has done a work here in opening the eyes of a blind man. Me, the blind man. Blind, my whole life, begging in front of the synagogue here. 40 years, you even went to see my parents. You can't deny what's happening in front of you, can you? And if you can, why is that? And so he just shrinks his entire testimony down to, I was blind, now I see. There. He's like, that should be enough, right? All the other accoutrements, all the other additions taken off of it. They said to them, now, nah, what did he say to you? How did he open your eyes? So they go back to it. I want to hear the mud again. I want to hear the Siloam again. I want to hear all this other stuff. And he answered them, you know what? I told you already. And you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you actually want to become his disciples? Now, his question is insulting and awesome. And it's also a great picture and a great testimony to us when we are getting into a discussion with somebody with regards to the words and works of Christ. If they are continually just asking questions just to denigrate the name of Christ, you are barking up the wrong tree. And it's actually a fair question. Are you actually open to being a disciple of Christ? Are you actually open to being a Christian? Because if not, why would I waste my time? I will just give you the works and the words of God. I will pray for you, but I'm not going to sit here and keep throwing pearls in front of swine. It's not going to work that way. And Jesus does the same thing. He does it to Bethsaida. He does it to Chorazin. He tells the disciples, do the same thing. If you go to a city and you preach the gospel and they hate you and reject you and reject the message, don't lose heart. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Don't become the Pharisees. It's not about you. Rejecting me, shake the dust from your feet, go to the next town. Christian, same for us in evangelism. If someone rejects Christ, don't take it personal. They're not rejecting you. You know why? Because you're not the gospel. You're not the savior. You're just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Now, they do all throughout history, and they may again. But until then, 
Don't take it personal. You're not the gospel. You're not there to save people. Christ saves people. You're not saving them to your lifestyle and your perspective of Christ. No. You are giving them the gospel and Christ will grow them up. I helped a young man once who was severely challenged by the world and his sense of who God was. Grew up in church. And I remember being tempted to convince him of my experience of Christianity. If I was going to teach him well, he should become kind of like Baptist, like me, right? Baptist-y. The Baptists won't have me anymore for some reason. Um, but I made up my mind early on. I spent years discipling this man. I made up my mind early on that if I was going to give him anything, it was just going to be the gospel. And I'll let the chips fall where they are. Wouldn't you know it? Grew up to be a very conservative Anglican. Completely different tradition than mine. Very different. But as I watched him grow and mature, I don't think I've ever been prouder. Because while it's different than me, he follows Christ. A man who once couldn't think of how we could ever get to a solution of knowing whether or not Christ was truly a savior. Do not save people only to make them into you. That's a hell of your own making, whether you realize it or not. I don't want you to be like me. That is the last reason I preach. I don't want you to be like me. I don't like me. Most people don't like me. <laughs> I want you to be like Christ. I truly do. I want you to be like Christ. No matter what that means. No matter if that makes you disagree with me on all sorts of secondary issues. I don't care. I don't take it personal. I'll disagree with you too. That's fine. But let's find unity in Christ, yeah? No matter what it means. No matter how difficult that's going to be, no matter how much persecution comes in the next generations, no matter any of these things. Because it's not about us. At the end of the day, it's not about Shane. It's not about Nathaniel. It's not about Jen. It's not about Tim. It's not about John, Gracie. It's about Christ and him crucified. The gift of God to mankind to save sinners. Not to become like us, not so that we all put on a uniform, but that we have unity and the bond of peace and that that unity, as Philippians 2 tells us, is given through humility and nothing else. Humility. The very thing the unbelieving heart is not capable of. Humility. Because the unbelieving heart is rooted in pride. The unbelieving heart will look at itself and say, why do I need a savior? I'm not sick. I'm doing just well. Sure, I fail in this and that, and that's my humility. But all in all, I'm pretty awesome. I can set the stage. I can set the example for other people to follow. And all. If you are thinking like this, you are far from Christ. Far from Christ. Because being near to Christ 
and growing nearer to Christ, you will see your sinfulness more and more and more as the years go on, not less. Christ will become much more significant to you. It's just as Colossians 1 says, let him have preeminence in all things, including our minds and our hearts. And John is telling us this in a story. He's giving it to us in this. He's saying it wouldn't matter how simple the testimony is. It doesn't matter how clear it is. It doesn't matter, unbeliever, if you have somebody standing in front of you who couldn't see, that now sees, that too wouldn't convince you. It's God alone who brings faith to the unbelieving heart. And we can see it here at the very close. He answered them, I've told you already, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of somebody greater, Moses. Now, in retrospect, as John's writing this, how foolish is that statement? Moses is better than Christ. That's lunacy. Moses never opened a man's eyes that was born blind. Moses didn't do the miracles. They were done on his behalf. God told him, I'm going to do this miracle. You just go, you hold the staff, and I'll take care of the rest of it. You just stand on the seashore, and I'll have a great east wind blowing all night long to split open the Red Sea. Go read that story again. It wasn't Moses going, ha-ha, clunk. Moses did not accomplish any of these things, and yet Jesus here is literally fashioning eyes out of dirt just as he did at the beginning of creation. That's amazing stuff. And then for them to come back and go, yeah, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. Man, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Yeah, you do. He comes from God. No sinner can do this stuff, which means he's serving God in a way different than you wish. And in fact, for the reader of John, you know that he actually is God, that kind of secret thing that's going on. We don't like him. We don't agree with him. He's not like us. We have authority. That will challenge our authority if we agree with him. We can't do that. I love the man's response. Verse 30. Why? This is an amazing thing. What an astounding thing. Like, he is just flabbergasted. He's like, imagine this. The first day you can see, and out of it comes witnessing this nonsense. And he's just like, this is an amazing thing. And I like to think that he's like saying it with that tone of just laughing at them. Like, what? What an amazing thing for you to say. He says, You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began. And you can see that the man's thoughts have already gone back to creation and made that connection that we already made. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Notice how his testimony inside the flabbergasted response went from really small because he was just annoyed with them to, you idiots, you can't see what's happened in front of you. I can. Why are you blind now? It's it's just turning the whole thing upside down onto it. And he is just astounded at this. And I would imagine laughing to a certain extent. 
And he says, if this man were not from God, he couldn't do this. And so they answered back and revealed their heart. You were born in sin. The very thing he spent 40 years trying to not tell himself. We know you're a sinner. God punished you. We know you were born in sin. We weren't born blind. Can you hear the venom? You were born in sin. The evidence of it is you're not like us. You're blind. That's all you'll ever be. You think you can teach us? We're better than you. We teach you. You're worse than us. We weren't born into sin. Look at us. We are good. Can you hear the hell dripping out of their mouth? Can you hear how much they wish for his destruction rather than them to be right? This is how the unbelieving heart interacts with God. You are born in sin. They said the same thing to Jesus because the rumor went around that nobody knew who his father was. We know who our father was. And then they cast him out of the synagogue. I would love to finish this chapter today, but I'm not going to. We will finish it next time. But I want all of us to consider what John is having us deal with here. Is there inside any of us an evil, unbelieving heart? If so, it'll show up these ways. It'll make us want other people to turn into us. It'll be proud. It'll be impenitent. It will see others' sins before you see your own. You will want to be in charge of other people, their lives, their emotions, their Christian walk. You will be unwilling to be challenged, unwilling to listen, unwilling even if scripture itself corrects you. And you will find in the center of your heart not humility in following Christ, but pride in following yourself. That is an evil, unbelieving heart. And I pray it is in none of us. I pray it is never found in any of us because it is so insidious and so destructive that it would take the very person, this blind man, and throw him out of the synagogue before admitting that they might be wrong about their view of God. That's not how it works. How it works 
for us. And this is where we turn the last bit to hope. We don't want unbelieving hearts. We want believing hearts. And so when we hear the words of Christ, when we see the works of Christ, what do we do when they challenge our habits? Do we reinterpret it? Explain it away? Or do we submit to Christ? I'm going to let that question hang in our minds today. Because one of the reasons is that John will take us to the very expression of what a believing heart looks like. And that's the final verses of this chapter, which, although I would love to sit here for the next half hour and give that sermon to you, we're going to have to do that next time. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that in the center of us, you will not find an unbelieving heart. You'll find instead a humble and contrite heart, aware of our own sin and need of a Savior even today. Father, that we do not explain away our sins as small mistakes and little hiccups here. No, we let our sins stand as strong as it is, that we may trust in a Savior who is far stronger. May he compel us to love one another out of humble unity rather than uniformity. Father, may we seek the glory of Christ. May we seek to walk humbly with one another and be gentle and kind. Not in lies, but gentle and kind in the truth. May it drive us to our knees to state that saying which should be accepted by all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. I pray you humble us, Father. Humble every person in this room that at the right time you may lift us up. Amen.